Amen. How we doing, church? Doing good? Look great. If you got your Bibles, I hope you do. Grab them. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. If you don't have your own Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. Uh, and you can take that with you. That'd be our gift to you. As you're going to Mark 2, we continue in this series on miracles. I want to ask you a question just to kind of frame it up. Because the moment you heard the beginning of this miracle, if you grew up in Bible study in and around church, your mind automatically kind of went to the end of the story. You already know what's going to happen. But let me just ask you this. <clears throat> imagine being in a place of just utter desperation. I mean, imagine, imagine like if you're a parent, imagine if one of your children were sick. Maybe not terminal, but, but it's definitely debilitating for the rest of their days. Or maybe, maybe it's your boyfriend or girlfriend or your parents or somebody that you love like crazy and they are sick. And what you know is that you had one chance, one opportunity for them to be healed or cured. What would you do in a moment like that? Man, you would do whatever it took for the sake of your friend. You see, uh, many years ago, probably six years ago or something like that, uh, when I was the youth pastor at Beach UMC, um, the Jacksonville Beach Police Department called me and said, hey, we have an opportunity. How would you like to be the chaplain for Jack's Beach PD? And I was like, okay, what do I do? And, and, and I kind of had to pastor the, the cops and then also give bad news to people. That wasn't that awesome. But they say, but you get a uniform and a badge. And I was like, well, sign me up for that scooter because I'm in, Okay. And I had a full-on uniform, like a, you know, uniform is awesome, and a badge. And I don't even know if it was really real, but the good news is nobody else knew either. So it had like a number and my name on it and said officer or such and such, all right? And so that was it. And they gave me this little wallet so I could be like, wah, and just show it, you know, like Starsky and Hutch. Some of you don't know who that is, but whatever, Google it. Okay, that's what I did. And it was great. And so one day, six or so years ago, uh, I'm at Dick's Sporting Goods at the town center in the hunting section, if you could imagine that. And so I'm at the counter talking to the guy about something. I think it was a scope for a rifle. And my son, JP, at that point, he was about this tall, all right? And so I told him, hey, listen, you stay right here, okay? Daddy's got to talk to this guy, and you need to stay right here. And so I, you know, I look away for a second. He moved. I was like, no, 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 right here. Don't move. You understand? Yes, sir, Daddy, I understand. And then I talked to the guy for probably a second, at least as reported later to Gretchen. It was a second long. <laughs> and then I look back, and he's not there anymore. And I think, oh, my goodness. And so I hand the thing back. I say, look, dude, I'll be back here in a second. And I think, boy, when I find this boy, I'm going to tell you what, we, he's not going to be put in the corner to think about it. We don't think about it at my house. You understand? I, we're going to get after it. And so I'm looking around, and then <clears throat> what begins to happen is, is that, that anger begins to kind of turn to just a little bit of like, oh, I can't find him. Because he's at that height where every little clothes rack, he's shorter than that, right? And so I'm looking around, and I don't see his little blonde head bopping around. And so I go to the fishing section because he is a Martin. So if he's not hunting, he's fishing. And so I'm looking down there, and I don't see him. I don't see him. And then the, the anxiety gets higher and higher and because um, I'm thinking, you know, I mean, you think he's cute now. You should have seen him when he was this tall. Somebody will steal that joker up, you know, and sell him on the Internet or whatever you do with him. But it would be crazy. And so then I had to do the peak down. You ever do this one, parents? Because one time in Walmart or somewhere, he got inside the clothes rack that goes around in a circle, you know, like he's on his way to Narnia or whatever he's trying to do. He's in there hiding. I said, I'm looking for feet, and I don't see feet. And at this point, I'm at the panic level, like, like mom panic. You know what I'm talking about, dads, right? You know that mom panic? Now, moms, y'all get there in like a second. Like, oh, my God, where is he? I'm like, we're at home. He just went to the bedroom. You understand? So, but it's that like, ah. So I didn't know what to do. So I did what every parent would do. You do whatever it takes. So I pull out my badge and I go to the manager and I'm like, Jack's Beach PD, we've got a missing child. We need to find him. Shut her down. 
Sure enough, sure enough, the guy, they have protocol for this sort of thing. He gets on the little speakerphone. He's like, we got a code blue, code blue. And so people start moving. Escalator stops, elevators are shut down. Uh, uh, associates go to the door. They, people are piling up. They won't let people out of the store. I'm on the little second floor. I don't know if you've been there. You should. And I'm looking over to see who I need to paratrooper down on and, you know, and arrest them. I don't think a chaplain can arrest people, but I was going to. <laughs> then I walk around, and there's JP just standing at the escalator, all right? And I got him, and I walked out the front door, and I showed my badge, carry on. We got him. <laughs> then I left. Later on, when I told Gretchen some version of that story, she was very anxious. She's a rule follower and a law abider, and she's like, I, was that illegal? I don't care. Because in that moment when I thought something was wrong with him, I was going to do whatever was in my authority or maybe even a little beyond to get him. See, that's the kind of desperation you have to read this account in. This is not just a Sunday school story. So here we go. We pick it up in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. It says, and when he, that he is Jesus, when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. You see, at this point, if you, if you briefly... Look back into Mark chapter 1. Jesus' ministry is in full effect. He's called the disciples. He's cast out demons. Um, he's healed just kind of a whole bunch of people. And he even heals a leper. And if you're going to go into ministry, you might want to write this down. If you heal, heal a leper, buckle up, buddy, because it is going up and to the right. People are going to show up. I mean, Jesus can't go anywhere at this point because he's doing signs and miracles and wonders. And people are showing up. They, they just want to see him. He's like a beaver at a Hollister. You understand? I mean, it is packed. And so the place is totally packed out. There's no more room in this house. And it says, and Jesus was preaching the word to them. You see, that's kind of about what we talked about last week. One of the reasons that Jesus did miracles was not just to demonstrate his raw power, but to demonstrate his redemptive purpose. You see, the miracles always pointed to the mission, and his mission was to seek and to save the lost. And so everybody's gathered in. Jesus is preaching the word. He's actually at Peter's house at this point, verse 3. It says, and they, these are these friends, and they came bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd. So you get the picture here. They show up because Jesus is in town. But when they get there, all right, it's like, it's like coming to 1122 during the third song. You know what I'm saying? You got to have people help you find a seat. But at that point, it's packed. There's people in the lobby. There's people in the doorways. Um, they don't really have windows. They kind of got peepholes. People are peeping through there. They cannot figure it out. And here's the problem. They couldn't get near Jesus because of the crowd. Can I just tell you, as one of the pastors here at 1122, that is one of my greatest pains. That several Sundays throughout the year, there, there are some weekends, particularly at 9 and 11, 22, where people can't get near Jesus because of the crowd. Because either we run out of space in new gen or we run out of seats. And so just so you know, the reason why we have multiple venues and multiple locations and all of that stuff is because we never, ever, ever, ever want this to be us. That, that people crowd other people out from meeting Jesus. The whole point of the whole thing is so that people will meet Jesus. And so here you go. You've got some friends here, and they can't get in. And so here's what they do. They remove the roof above him, and when they had made an opening. Now, here, here's, here's what's important. You see, these friends care so much about their friend that they are willing to do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. You see, some people are really good at finding excuses as to why things can't happen. And other people are really good at finding a way to get stuff done. Nobody's ever good at both. 
Either you're going to be really great at why it can't, or you'll get really good at why it can. And what these brothers are doing is they are willing to do whatever it takes. I mean, they're going to go and climb up on Peter's house and start digging through the roof. That's what it says, that they dig through the roof above him, and they make an opening. Now, this isn't like an escape hatch. The way, like you saw in that video, there were layers of the roof. There was a, a layer of reeds and then of palm branches and then some mud, and then they would bake this clay and lay it on top. And so this isn't, I mean, this takes a minute. Can you imagine in your disciple group, what would happen if your disciple group grew so big that you're all jammed up in there, but there's one group that wants to get in your disciple group and they can't get in. And so you hear this knocking and this noise while you're trying to teach the word. And then you look up and some people are ripping a hole in your roof. I mean, you'd be calling Ed up here at church, but hey, bro, I don't think we can do a disciple group at my house anymore, okay? Some of you crazy people dug a hole in my roof. You see, it was very, very messy too, very messy. I mean, the thing's made of dirt and clay, so there's dirt and mud going everywhere. And everybody can't just run home and take a shower. It was very messy. It was very expensive, very expensive. They have to replace the roof. You ever replace a roof? It's very expensive. And they didn't care if it ticked off all, ticked off all the people that got there early and on time and had a seat for themselves. They were willing to make everybody on the inside uncomfortable so that they could get their friend to Jesus. It says they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. They just sort of lowered him down into the church service. Now, just a little aside here. Do you have friends like that? I mean, do you have some friends that when you really need them, that you can count on them to carry you to Jesus? Now, for the majority of the sermon, I'm going to say, are you that kind of friend? But I would like for you to just take a second and, and answer that question. Do you have four friends? Do you have four friends that when you need help, and let me just tell you this, there will come a day where you will need help. There will come a day where you cannot make it on your own. There will come a day where you will find yourself paralyzed. You will, you will either be paralyzed by fear or doubt or a financial situation or a relational situation or in raising your children or a health crisis. There will come a day where you cannot make it on your own. Do you have four friends that you could write down right now and you would know, man, if it really hits the fan, I got four people that would do whatever it took at great expense to themselves to carry me to Jesus. If not, Houston, we have a problem because you and I were created for relationships and you need those kind of friends before you need those kind of friends. It's like a retirement account. If you wait till you need it to start investing in it, it is way too late. And let me tell you who's the worst at this. Married men. Married men. You got that one relationship, and you're like, all right, I'm done. And you don't have friends. You have buddies. Buddies are all right. I mean, you know, you got golfing buddies and hunting buddies and drinking buddies and surfing buddies. All right. But usually that's just a distraction from what you actually need. When's the last time you had a spiritually significant conversation with one of your buddies? If not, you've got a problem, brother. What you need is a band of brothers that would be willing to rally around you when you are in your times of greatest need. If you can't write down four people that would be there for you like that, we, we try to make it simple. Go to the Connect Center, get in a disciple group, join a men's group. Women, this is true for you too. Not only that, let me ask you this, who's praying for you? If you've got something going on in your life right now, who is praying for you? Do you have four people that you could text and say, please pray, and you would give them the real deal? Not that little silly Bible bookstore, I just have an unspoken. What does that mean? That's so dumb. No, speak it. But like, can you pray about, 
You see, we have a praying church at the Church of 1122, and we would love to be a place where nobody prays alone. Where that you, I mean, you do pray alone, but it's not your only option. You also have people come around you and pray. It's why, by the way, at the end of the service, when we invite you to pray, and we say, hey, come on down, we got altars, and we got carpets, and, and, and you just come up here and pray. It's why we also have a prayer team, so you don't have to pray alone. If you've ever seen our, the people kind of standing behind the people praying, and they're up there just doing this, they're not like Jedis. These are not the droids you're looking for. That's not what they're doing. <laughs> they're praying for people. Sometimes they might even come and place a hand on your shoulder. And if that makes you uncomfortable, just write this down. Get over yourself, okay? You need people to lay hands and pray for you. Now, sometimes it can go a little far. Uh, a couple years ago, or many years ago, when we were at Beach, a service there, I think I was preaching on fatherhood, I think. And this dad is there, and his whole family's with him. He's, he's married, he's got two daughters, and his oldest daughter had just gone off to college, but she was back for, like, fall break or something like that. And so during our close, the way we close around here, you know, is we respond, and one of the ways we respond is by prayer. And so his daughter comes out, and she heads down the aisle, and this dad, he's kind of feeling that conviction. He's like, you know what, I need to go pray for my daughter. And he was not like a go-to-the-altar guy that often. So he walks out, and he comes down, and there she is. She's kneeling down, and she's praying. And so he puts his hands on her shoulder, and he leans down. Because you know that last song, especially if you're way down here, I mean, you know, it'll melt your face off if you're not careful, right? It's kind of loud. And so he gets down here like this, and he's like right in her ear, and he's just whispering this prayer, Psalm 139, 14. Dear God, I praise you because you're fearfully and wonderfully made. My works are wonderful. I know that full well. And he's just telling her how proud he is of her and then just praying. And come on, man, if, if you're a college-age daughter, wouldn't you love to have your dad just praying over you like that, you know? And, and so he's praying over her and then kind of gets done and just kisses her on the head. And feeling super awesome as a dad. And he walks back to his seat and there's his daughter. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, boy. And so he looks at her. He's like, what are you doing here? She's like, what do you mean? He said, you went to the altar to pray. No, I didn't. I went to the bathroom. No, you didn't. You went to the altar. No, no, no. I just went to the bathroom. Now I'm back. And he's like, oh, boy. So at the end of the service, he comes up to me. He's like, I feel like I need to tell you something. <laughs> and he tells him, like, oh, yeah, that's, that's not awesome. And but, but here's the thing I was thinking about. I was thinking about, imagine that girl. She's 18, 19-ish years old, and she's down there praying, probably for a date, right? Dear God, I'm like, oh, here it is. Whoa, I was getting creepy. Sounds old. Oh, boy. <laughs> and then maybe she thinks, this is the friendliest church I've ever been to in my life. So later on, we found out who she was, and, you know, through some prayer and counseling, uh, she recovered. <laughs> but do you have friends that are praying for you? I mean, really, really praying for you. You need them. See, this brother, even though it ain't going his way so far, he's got friends that are willing to do whatever it takes to get him to Jesus. Verse 5, after they've torn a hole in the roof, they lower him down. And when Jesus saw their faith, see, faith is not a feeling. Faith is not mustering up this fuzzy feeling every week and pushing away doubts. You see, the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith is believing that God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises to the point where it produces action. Faith is something that Jesus can see. And when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, here's what he said, son, that's what he starts out with, son. Now, here's what you need to know. A bunch of first century religious people had some very, very twisted theology. They believed that if anybody had a physical ailment, it was because of a spiritual punishment. We find out this in John chapter 9. They see a blind man on the side of the road, and the disciples ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus says, no, 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 boys, this is not how it works. 
that the physical ailment is not punitive, that God has a plan for each and every person. We do live in a twisted world, so not only, not only are our desires twisted, but some of our cells can be twisted sometimes, and, and weather patterns can be twisted, but one day Jesus is going to make all things new. And so this man, imagine this paralytic man had been told some pretty awful stuff about his condition for his entire life. And I don't know, maybe he's never, ever been called son before. And Jesus looks at him, and Jesus is the only one that gets to tell him who he is. Not some label that this world had given him. And of all the labels, Jesus decides to go with son. Son, because of your faith, because of your faith, you are a part of the forever family of God. And so he says this, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, immediately, everybody in the house is thinking, that is not what we came here for. We didn't come to see sins forgiven. We want to see a miracle. And so he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6, now some of the scribes, those are religious people, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And actually, they're right. I mean, they are right. Who does this man, Jesus, think he is to say that he forgives their sin? It would be like this. It would be like, imagine you two getting in a scuffle this morning. I mean, just imagine, pretend that people get in fights on the way to church on Sundays. I know, it's crazy, right? You probably got up and prayed, but, you know, imagine. I mean, and you really get into a fight. I mean, you're screaming and cussing in the car on the way home and on the way here, and then, and then when you walk through the doors, you lied to our ushers. How you doing today? This is blessed and highly favored. But then when you got back in your seat, you just couldn't stand it anymore, and you're fighting and fighting and fighting. And imagine, I mean, it's really good, you know, like it's really good. And then I walked up in the middle of your fight and said, hey, 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 listen, I forgive you. <laughs> Wouldn't you be like, who do you think you are? Stepping up into my fight, trying to tell me, we haven't done anything against you. What kind of authority do you have to say that you forgive us? The only person that can forgive us is if we have sinned against you. And Jesus would go, ding, 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 we have a winner. That Every single time we sin, we sin against the almighty God. And only the almighty God would have the authority to forgive sin. And so when they are questioning who can forgive sins but God alone, Jesus is saying, essentially, you're absolutely right. And it's a little foreshadowing to how he is going to forgive sin. You see, he said, he's going to say he has the authority to forgive sin. Authority is either earned or given. Jesus has both. He earns it at the cross, and it is given to him by God the Father. And when he goes to the cross, he will earn the ability to forgive sins. Verse 8, and immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves. Notice, they did not say this out loud. Just in their heart, they felt like, who does this man think he is? You see, Jesus knows the thought of every man, even before it becomes a word. So I'm just telling you, if knowing this, if I bump into Jesus in the first century, I would just be like, amazing grace, how sweet. Yeah, see, I got you in there, baby, in my heart. But here, he knows what they're thinking in their heart. And he says, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, that's kind of a tricky question, right? Sometimes Jesus goes a little tricky on you. And he's getting tricky with these guys. He asks him this question. He goes, so what's easier, for me to say, I forgive your sins? Or, or for me to tell him to get up and walk? Well, it kind of depends. On the surface, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, right? Because, I mean, I could do it. Like, your sins are forgiven. 
All right, well, we're going to have to wait a minute to see if that worked or not, you know, before you die and stand before the judgment seat of God, and then you'll see if it actually took or not. Nobody really knows. But if you say to a man, get up and walk on three, two, one, and then everybody knows. Everybody knows. And what we find out here, too, is when Jesus would heal people, it would happen immediately. It's not like physical therapy happened and then over like six months, and Jesus was like, I did that. I, I, I take credit for that. No. That if he tells this man, get up and walk, then people are going to know in this moment. So which one's easier? Well, on the one hand, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven unless you can actually pull it off. You see, if Jesus is who he says he is and he always keeps his promises, then actually it's infinitely harder to forgive sin than it is to heal a man. Because if he is the creator of all things, if everything is actually made by him, for him, through him, and to him, then how easy is it for a man to make a leg work whose legs didn't work? Like, come on, work. Get up and walk. And you know how hard it was for him to forgive sin? You see, he had to live a perfect life, an absolutely perfect life. He was crushed. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours will be done. And then he sweat like drops of blood, and then he was flogged. And by his stripes, we were healed. And he went to the cross, and all of the wrath of God was heaped on Jesus to pay the sin debt that every single one of us earned. And when Jesus died on the cross, Right before he went out, he said, Father, it is finished. And what was finished was the final bill was paid for my sin and for your sin. So what's easier? Oh, it's way easier for the creator of the universe to heal a man than to forgive sin. And that's what he's talking about. And so he goes on in verse 10. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says, what I'm about to do here is to confirm what I just said about who I am. You see, there was this rabbinical tradition written down in this book called the Talmud. The Talmud was like a commentary on what rabbis thought. And one of the, one of the statements in there is this, that God would not bless or help a liar. And so what Jesus is about to do is this. He's saying, okay, so if I can make this man walk in the name of God, and you know that I have his blessing in that area of my life, then you must know that what I say about this man's Sins are also true. Therefore, that would mean that I am God Almighty that has the authority to forgive sin. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, in about four or five weeks, I can't remember, but in about four or five weeks, we're going to spend an entire sermon on why Jesus would tell this man to pick up his bed or pick up his mat and walk with it. Because you've got to understand that's a nasty mat. That's a nasty bed. He's been paralyzed on it for a long time. And you might think, oh, God, you sure you want to take this with you? Because I, I could just drop it off in the trash. And Jesus is like, no, 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 pick this up and take it with you. You don't want to miss this week. And I can't remember exactly which week it is. So come to all of them, and then you'll be stoked when we get to that one. All right. Like, oh, I've been looking forward to this one. Verse 12. And the man rose and immediately picked up his bed. Again, this isn't physical therapy. This isn't like the slow miracle. This is boom. He said, get up. And he got up. And he picked up his bed. And he went out before them all. So that they were all amazed. And they glorified God. That's what worship is. When you see God for who he really is and what he has done. Not only in you, but around you. Then we, we are amazed and we glorify God. Here's what they said. We never saw anything like this. Now, the moment I see those words, we never saw anything like this. I... um. My first thought I have is what God is doing in and through the ministry of 1122. 
I've been, I've been a professional Christian for 22 years. That means I've been on church staff for 22 years, all right? I've been around a whole lot of churches. I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen anything like what God is doing in this place. And I am not talking about like campuses and building and church attendance. I'm talking about in the last three weeks, I gotta do a little bit of math because we just did a salvation invitation in the last service. We've had, yeah, 296 salvations in the last three services. Between Palm Sunday, Easter, last weekend, and two that we've had so far, 291. And here's, here's why that's a big deal. That miracle is the only eternal miracle. Salvation is the only eternal miracle. Every lame person that walked, guess what? They didn't walk so good after they died until they got to heaven. But you know what I'm saying, right? That, that the only eternal miracle is salvation. And God, over and over and over, has just been blowing our minds around here. And, here's, and, and people say, why? People ask me all the time, why? Why do you think it's happening here? Well, because God does whatever he wants to do. I think part of the reason is because the Bible says that God will use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And so he looked around, Dylan, South Carolina, he said, yep, I'll take that redneck right there, put him in charge, and then everybody would be like, eh, it must be the Lord because that dude doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> Amen. That is a fact. The other thing I think is I think the heartbeat of 1122 is the heartbeat of God. It's why 1122 is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, first and foremost, that we are a movement. Do you know that when Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 in Caesarea Philippi said, upon this rock I will build my church, is the way it's translated in English. Actually, that word there is ekklesia. I will build my ekklesia. Ekklesia is a Greek word that means a group of people called out on purpose. It was not a religious word at all. Like if you've ever seen people picketing something, that would be an ekklesia, a group of people called out on purpose. And he was saying, I'm calling out this group of people and their purpose is the declaration of the gospel. And it's really a shame that about three, between three and 400 AD, they began to use the, the German word kirche instead of the Greek word ekklesia. And kirche, which has its roots in what we would know as church, it means the Lord's house. And so it went from this movement to this place you go on the weekend. It's really a shame. That's why 1122, um, it's not a place. I don't know if you realize this. We're not really into buildings that much. We've got, we got a Walmart and a sports bar, whatever it takes. You understand? But we are a movement for all people. Everybody's invited. Whether you're the paralytic that has a hard time finding room and you've been, a long way, been away from God for a long time, or you're a scribe and a Pharisee and you're a religious person that sits on the front row with many translations of the Bible, and every time I say a Hebrew word, you're like, that's not how you pronounce it. Whatever, you're here too, okay? We're a movement for all people, all kind of people, all colored people, whatever you did last night, whatever you're planning on doing next weekend, guess what? Everybody's invited to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus. That means we are all about, if you are far from God and you've never discovered that Jesus loves you and that when he died on the cross, it counted for you, then man, we're here for you. And, but not at the expense of the longtime Christian. You see, I believe, I believe like crazy that we can both discover and deepen the most important thing in all eternity, and that is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that's what we are all about. And here's the point. One of the best ways to deepen your relationship with Jesus is to help other people discover theirs. One of the best ways to deepen your own walk with Jesus is to help other people discover for the very first time their, their walk with Jesus. See, if you do, look, if you would consider yourself a Christian for a while and say, you know what, I'm into the deep teachings of the Bible. Great, I'd scream too. All right, and so 
If you do a study on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you will see here is anytime the disciples got uber-focused on just their own deepening, when they, got, when, they, when they sort of began to turn inward and just look at themselves, Jesus always rebuked and chastised them. Like, for instance, when Peter, James, and John are up on the Mountain of Transfiguration where Jesus is showing them a glimpse of his glory and his face is shining like lightning, Peter steps in and says this, It is really good that I am here. We should build tents and stay here. And then the Bible says that God the Father speaks up and says, Listen to my son, which is which is Greek for, can you just shut up and not make this about you for a minute? Or when, when, um, when two brothers sent their mom, hey, can you go talk to Jesus about us being on the right and left? Jesus chastised them and said, what are you talking about? You see, if you want to be first, you've got to be last in my kingdom. But the times, when, the times when they got the most high fives, the times when they got the most high fives as disciples, it's when they were most focused on helping other people discover their relationship with Jesus. Like when they fed the 5,000, when they would heal the sick. When they, would, when they would do those kinds of things. You see, you want to deepen your relationship with Jesus? You be like one of these friends in this account, and you get really, really serious about bringing one of your friends to Jesus. It'll change everything about your walk with him. It'll change the way you pray. Because guess what? You will not be the subject of all your prayers anymore. You'll actually start praying about other people. It'll also change your morality. Now, it won't just be about is this right or wrong, but you'll actually begin to consider how do, how do my actions and words begin to impact what other people think about Jesus. It'll change the way, it'll change your desperation because then you will begin to understand fully that you can't save anybody. And God, I need a miracle from you. I need you to move in a way that I cannot move. And it will change the way you read and study and understand the scriptures. Do you know why I know the Bible so well? Because for 20 years, I've been teaching people the Bible. And here's the deal. If I was just looking in it just for me, I would probably be satisfied at, at, at a much lower level. But when I understand that every single, it's really four days, every four days for me, I've got to teach you the Bible, I read it totally different. You see, because if you're going to the scriptures trying to answer questions that your friends that you love are asking, it changes everything. Have you ever had to learn something that you have to teach? Man, you, you, you hunger for it, and you know it totally different. You see, one of the best ways to deepen your relationship with Jesus is to pick up a friend's mat and help them discover theirs. You see, this mat that, that is talked about here in Mark chapter 2, it's clear that there are four friends that carry it, and I think there are four corners to this mat. And so what if there were four corners to you and I helping people come to know Jesus? The first corner that we are responsible to pick up is this. And if you've got your notes, you can take it out and it, and it helps you right there. We even divided it up into four different corners. The first corner is this. It's you sharing your faith. It's me personally just sharing my faith. Having the kind of relationships, having friendships with people that need Jesus. Jesus says it this way in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see the word that's repeated there over and over? It's you, not the preacher. It doesn't say, and the preacher will receive power when the preacher has the Holy Spirit and the preacher will be a witness. It says you, just everyday disciples like me and you. Every single one of us, if, if Jesus is your Lord, we are called to share our faith. And the moment you hear that word, share your faith, some of us go to a place of just kind of weirdness, okay? And listen, Jesus isn't calling you to be weird, 
or to be weird about sharing your faith. Unless you're just already a weird person, then you're gonna share your faith in a weird way. The good news is right now, you don't even know I'm talking to you. Okay, you don't, but you're so happy. You know, everyone knows weird people just don't even know, but they're so happy, all right? Those of us kind of people that understand weirdness are like, Ugh. okay, so, and, and so I'm not talking about like bullhorns at the Jags game. If that's your ministry, you know, let's talk later and pray about that for a second. But I'm just talking about ordinary, average, everyday, fully devoted followers of Jesus. He calls us to be a witness, to share our faith as the Holy Spirit leads you to. And if you're a Christian, the same Holy Spirit that resurrected Jesus from the grave lives in you and wants to lead God and direct for you to share your faith. Sometimes it's the whole ball of wax. Sometimes it's to share the gospel. I mean, the beginning, the middle, and the end. To diagnose the problem, hey, listen, you're not a bad person that needs to be better. You're a dead person that needs life, and life is found in Jesus. And, and you would get to that moment where you ask people to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the Spirit leads you to just share your story. You're like, hey, I don't know how to answer all your theological questions, but here's what I know. My life used to be like this, then I met Jesus, and this is what it's been like since then, to just share your story. Sometimes, sometimes the Holy Spirit leads you to just share an invitation. Like somebody new moves into your neighborhood, and you just share the invitation. Be like, hey, have you found a, welcome to the neighborhood. Have you found a church? Especially if they're from up north. You get this? Because those, you know, Yankee pagans, they, they don't go to church. And so when they come down here with us, you'd be like, oh, man, we live in Jacksonville. you got to go to church. And so that's just what you do. You say, you should come to my church with me. And listen, if you're from up north, then you should say amen. That's why you moved down here with us in Jesus. Praise God. All right, hey, welcome. <laughs> and, and not a non-vitation, not a you should consider coming to my church sometime, but I mean an invitation. Hey, let's meet for breakfast, and I'll take you to breakfast, and then afterwards we will go to my church. Because you don't want just to be like, hey, just follow the stickers on a Sunday and hope they lead to the right place. No. You want to actually say, just share an invitation. Hey, listen, would you like to come with me to my church? Sometimes you need to share a burden. Like some people are going through a hard thing, and the Spirit will just lead you just to say something this simple. This is so not offensive. Just, hey, can I be praying for you about something? Because it's just an open door to say, hey, listen, I'm a praying person. I believe that God hears my prayers, not because I'm special, but because he's a father. And he's just a good dad. That's just who he is. And so can I just be praying? Or sometimes it's, it's to, to, share, um, to share in an act of kindness because your neighbor or somebody, a friend, is going through something. So you take them a meal, you cut their grass, you write them a note, and you're just sharing each other's burdens. Sometimes the Spirit just leads us to share one more cup of coffee just to continue building that relationship so that our friends know, I'm not trying to do anything to you. I'm just trying to share something with you that's really, really important. I mean, we, we, talk about, we talk about good movies. We talk about good restaurants. It's crazy if we don't talk about the Good Shepherd. And let me just tell, tell you this, folks. You're doing a great job. I mean, you are. You must be doing this. This is how we all got here, right? It's somebody invited us. And so um, about a month ago, literally, when I was in Israel, uh, I was at Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas is the great high priest, or the high priest, not the great high priest, that's Jesus. Caiaphas was the high priest when Jesus got arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and you can go and visit his house. And in the basement of his house is like a holding cell where Jesus was the night that he got arrested. And so we were down there, and we're checking it out. And earlier that morning, we had been on the Mount of Olives. So when the Bible says, like, Jesus went up to the mountain to pray, that's where he went. Um, it's also where the Garden of Gethsemane is, where he is arrested. So we were there. And then you cross through the Kidron Valley, and you can go to the city of Jerusalem. And so anyway, we're down at Caiaphas' house checking it out. And it's super emotional. It's kind of, I don't know, it's hard to put into words, but I'll take you one day and show it to you. And so we're leaving his house, Caiaphas' house, and we go on the porch, and then we're walking up the steps, and we're heading back to the old city. And as I'm walking up the steps, I hear this. In Jerusalem, I hear, 
Pastor Joby? And I think, you have got to be kidding me, all right? <laughs> I mean, it's one thing when you're in Target. It's another thing when you're in Jerusalem. Our God was like, who are you? I was like, well, a redneck, all right? So they're like, we recognize the plaid and the hick twang, all right? Oh, thanks. So, so I, I meet these kids. They're kids to me. They're half my age. These college students. So I'm like, what are y'all doing? And they say, well, oh, we go to your church. I'm like, time out. It's not my church. If you're there and I'm there, we're there. It's our church, okay? So we go to church together. And so we confirm all that. And then they said, um, yeah, we're a part of YWAM. It's a, a ministry here in Jacksonville. And they said, we, we've been on a mission trip for a month in, in the Jordan, not the Jordan, the river, but the country, sharing the gospel with Muslims. And so we're just having this little family reunion. It's amazing. And the way they're doing their Israel trips way different than the way we will do it. We stayed in really nice restaurants and we, I mean, stayed in really nice hotels and ate really good food. They've been standing in like hostels, which kind of has a double entendre there. And they've been eating pita bread and hummus. So we gave them all the money we had in our pockets, you know, like, here, seriously, get a hamburger or something. And, and then I was like, can we just pray for you? I mean, because this is a part of our family that's doing what Jesus said to do in Acts 1-8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we gathered up, and I'm praying. I'm not just saying a prayer. I mean, we're praying, like laying hands on these missionaries of ours that I'm meeting for the first time. And we are praying. And when I pray, maybe it's just because I read the Bible a lot because this is what I do for a living. But when I start praying, Bible verses come into my mind. That's just how it works. And so I'm praying for these college kids, and I I'm like, dear God, just thank you for this part of our family, da, 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 da. And then I begin to think of the Great Commission, that they are participants in the Great Commission. And so I'm like, Lord, I just thank you so much for, for these young men and women who are, who, are, who are actually living out the Great Commission. And then it hit me, that you gave right over there. Because through the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives and on the other side of that is a little town called Bethany. And right between the Mount of Olives on the other side and Bethany is the place where Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And he gave the great commission that said, therefore, go and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I begin to think, holy moly. I've read that forever and now I can see it. And Jesus, what you said 2,000 years ago, right over there, it boomeranged like in Acts 1-8. It boomeranged from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, went all the way to the ends of the earth. That's Jacksonville. And now that sucker's right back here in Jerusalem. <sighs> so I'm getting all freaked out praying, all right? And if you're not into this, I don't care. I'm praying like crazy. And then I'm like, oh, Lord, just fill them up with the spirit which fell on the southern steps right over there when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and the spirit fell down on 3,000 believers and the word began to go out. You see, that's, that's our part. That's our part. And again, honestly, church, you're doing an amazing job. You pick up that corner of just sharing your faith. Whether it's share the gospel or share another cup of coffee or share your story or share an invitation or share their burden, whatever it is. That's, that's one corner of the mat. Another corner of the mat is you serving in the local church. It's you serving in the local church so that when you do share that invitation, hey, you should come with me to my church sometime, that when people show up, the last thing in the world we want to happen is that, is that they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd. Every single environment that we have here in this church is for one, pre, one person, I mean one purpose, is to get that one person near Jesus. That's it. And so, did you know, this might blow your minds, okay, especially if you're new to church. Did you know that my job is not actually to do the ministry of the church? I don't know, you think of that, and you're like, but you're the professional. What do you do then? Just hunt and go to Israel all the time? That would be awesome, but no. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 what my job is. See, 
the book of Ephesians is all about the gospel. The first half is the declaration of the gospel, and the second half is the demonstration of the gospel in the church, at family, at work, etc. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it says this. And he gave, that's God, and God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. In our context, that would be like church staff. That would be like the pastors, the ministers, those kind of people that work here at church. That he gave those positions, and here's why, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. Guess who the saints are? That's you. That's every single one of you that would say Jesus Christ is your Lord. Guess what? You're a saint. That should be really good news to you, especially you Catholics. You could be like, what? I'm a saint? Yeah, you could take that necklace off and get one with your own name on it, right? Saint Ted, look right there. Call your Catholic grandma and be like, Pastor told me I'm a saint, mama. You call me Saint Ted now. It's true. You see, because not because you're awesome, but because what Christ did on the cross for you was awesome. And when Jesus looks at you, when God looks at you, if you're in Christ, he says, saint. And he's not even being sarcastic. He's being for real. And so our job is to equip you to help us create the kind of environments when any person brings themselves or their friend into this place, they would never, ever, ever be able to say they couldn't get near Jesus because of the crowd. That when they would pull up into the parking lot, they would see saints there. Saints helping them park. And let me tell you, you need saints in the parking lot because some of you drive like the devil. All right, you know you do. And when they would come into the front doors, saints would hand you the bulletin. When you would check your kids into New Gen, you would understand that you're handing over the most precious thing that you have right now in your life to some saints. They aren't just babysitting our children, but they are, they are demonstrating and declaring the gospel in age-appropriate ways. And when your students would show up here on Wednesday night or whatever event they were coming to, that there would be saints that were gathering around to make this the kind of place, to make this the kind of place where no matter what somebody came to, that they would always have the opportunity to bump into Jesus. So grab this serve card right here. Some of you saints, uh, it's time for you to step up and to become a, a part of the ministry, not just a consumer of it, but a participant in it. And so if you're a regular at 1122, I want you to grab this. I want you to start praying right now. And, and, and if you get bored during some part of the sermon, which I've heard that can happen sometimes, uh, just flip it over in the serve opportunities. And here's a bunch of opportunities where we need you to serve because it's the second corner of this mat where you would pick it up and be like, all right, I got this corner. After I share an invitation, I want to be a part of when they show up to this kind of place that they might have the opportunity to bump into Jesus. And then at the end of the service, when you're leaving, after you fill out your name and information and the one ministry area that you would like to serve in, you can drop this in one of the boxes on the way out and somebody, somebody will get in contact with you. The third corner is this. The third corner is that it is the responsibility of the church. It is responsibility of the leaders of the church to remove obstacles and make room. That's the third corner, to remove obstacles and make room. So listen, here at the Church of 1122, we are not satisfied with full rooms, that we want to be willing to do whatever it takes to rip off whatever roof we must, even though we know it's messy, it bothers the people that already have a seat, and it's very, very expensive, but we want to rip off the roof to make room for one more. It's why we do multi-site. It's why we do multiple venues. It's why we want to do everything short of sin to take the gospel to as many people as possible. You see, in Acts chapter 15, they had the very first church business meeting. And in that business meeting, here's what they were discussing. You see, they didn't necessarily intend for the gospel to make it past the Jews. 
And it did. It started reaching out to the Gentiles, people that were far from God. And Gentiles began to get saved. Gentiles began to become Christians. And they had this meeting, because here's what churches committees are really good about. Church committees are good at gathering together and voting on, can God do what God's already done? That's what they like to do, okay? And so that's what they're doing. And the question they're asking is, do you have to become Jewish before you become a Christian? And particularly what they're doing is saying, do you have to be circumcised before you can become a Christian? Now, I know some of you think it's hard to become a member at the Church of 1122, but let me just tell you, we don't require any surgery at all to become a covenant member here. And so in this discussion in Jerusalem, James stands up in Acts 15, 19, and he says this, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And so we believe here at 1122 that our job is to not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. That our job is to knock down the barricades and roadblocks, not to put them up. And so one of our biggest barricades right now, it really is, it seats at optimum hours on Sunday morning. So still in Jacksonville, most people go to church on Sunday morning. And so the reason we start a bunch of other services, like 1.30 and 5.22 and 7.22, is because we need a whole bunch of you to help me tear the roof off by going to church on a, either Sunday afternoon or on Thursday night. And here's why, here's why. Because we should be willing as a church to do whatever it takes. I don't care how much it costs. I don't care how messy it is. I don't care how much it disrupts the people that get here on time to have a seat. That we should be willing to do whatever it takes to make room for one more person. And there's some of you right here that are like, well, I don't know, man. I'm just saying, somebody might get my seat. Let me tell you who loves it that we're at this kind of church. The person right now that has a son or a daughter that's a prodigal and they're far from God. And in this moment right now, they're like, thank you, Jesus, that this church is willing to do whatever it takes to make room for one more because I got one more that I need to come to Jesus. And if they ever come to church, it's going to be one like this where there's no dress code and all of that stuff. And so the church's responsibility is to remove whatever obstacles that must be removed. So we are not satisfied with full rooms because that's not the point. The point is to be a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not only that, that doesn't just apply to Jacksonville. It's to Judea, it's to uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we're gonna do this in and around all over Jacksonville, but we're also gonna take it to the very ends of the earth. That's why in our Before All Things initiative over the next two years, we're gonna plant you, we together as a church, we're gonna plant 100 churches. And we wanted to give you a little update on where we are right now, so check this out. My name is Ryan Britt, and I am the Executive Ministries Pastor here at the Church of 1122. As a part of the Before All Things initiative, we really felt compelled to sow gospel seeds in our community and around the world. And what we realized that that meant was that we were going to be a church that planted churches. And we set out from the beginning of 1122 to be a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus. Well, a part of that all people is all nations, all tribes, all tongues. And so we have focused our energies in East Africa and Brazil through partnerships that we've had established there where we are seeing national autonomous churches that are, that are led by nationals planted in communities all over the place right now, specifically in East Africa and Brazil. We've already seen 26 different pastor schools um, get filled with almost 500 pastors in training. And we've been able to plant and establish 14 different churches in different parts of the world in different regions. 
Everybody who comes and is a part of this movement through their praying, through their giving, through their going, they get to be a part of this global movement of God making himself known through church planters. And that is the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that Jesus would be famous in every community all over the world. And so that's why we have committed ourselves to planting healthy churches. My name is Ryan Stone. I'm the pastor at Bay Meadows, and I just got back on the ground from a trip, week-long trip, in Uganda training uh, Bible school teachers and training church planters, getting them ready to go plant churches and to teach and multiply God's Word. I think it's real easy to take uh, the idea of missions or the idea of something happening in Africa and just chalk it up as, you know, we fund that. But when you actually sit down from men like Pastor Titus and Pastor Stephen and you hear the fact that they sold everything they own to plant a church, or you sit across from a lady named Millie who's literally planted a house church that's got 90 people coming, 90 people, 90 adults coming to her house every Sunday for the word, it, it takes the whole initiative from being this idea or strategy and it really becomes partnership. And so when we think about sowing gospel seed, I mean, the command is to go and make disciples to the ends of the earth. And so we want to be obedient. So the future to me, I mean, kind of from the 30,000 foot view is plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. In the life of every believer, we come to a place where we have to ask ourselves, are we living on mission with Jesus? Or is something else in front of that mission? That's the whole idea of the Before All Things journey. As we look around our own personal influence, when we look around our country, when we look around multiple countries and to the ends of the earth, we have to ask ourselves this, are we bringing people to Jesus or are we giving our time to other things? And we know that as believers, the most significant call, the, the, the commission of us all is to do whatever we have to do with whatever Jesus has trusted us with to bring people to Him. And we know that we're gonna to continue to realize more fully God's vision as we continue down this road of obedience. It started with planting 100 churches through the Before All Things journey, but who knows where God's gonna take us next. Amen. You had no idea you've already planted uh, 14 churches since Christmas, right? Anytime you participate in generosity with 1122, you are participating in the church, removing obstacles and making room for people, not just here, but literally all over the world. Now, the, the four corners again, it's me and you individually sharing our faith. It's us serving in the local church to create the right kind of environments. It's the church leadership, removing obstacles. But if the fourth one doesn't happen, it's all just an exercise in futility. You see the fourth corner it's for God to do what God does. You see, the Bible says it this way. In Ezekiel 36, I know you read Ezekiel all the time, but let me just remind you. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, salvation is the Lord's. That you can pray your face off and you can have great environments and invite people. But until God causes that heart in us to change, nothing will ever change. And in John chapter 15, Jesus says it this way. Jesus says in 15, 13 of John, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Now, one of, the thing that one of the things that strikes me about this as I was preparing for this sermon is that I think Jesus is the only religious leader to ever offer friendship. 
a lot of religious leaders throughout history, they, they offered um, teaching or a way to live or a philosophy of life. And what Jesus ultimately offers is he offers himself. He offers a friendship. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. And no, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And what Jesus chose you for is friendship. So just imagine for a second. Imagine if you were in the first century. And imagine if you had a need that you had tried to meet over and over and over in a number of ways and you just couldn't do it. You were paralyzed on this mat and you had some friends and they each picked up a corner and they took you to Jesus. And when you couldn't get in, you thought, oh man, my hopes, my dreams are over. I don't have a chance. But they didn't give up and they dug a hole in the roof and they lowered you down. Can you imagine the, the fear and trepidation that would be in you when you're just lowering into a church service and then you lock eyes face to face with the almighty son of God and you sure are hoping he is who he says he is and that he always keeps his promises. But for some reason, you believe. You don't understand, you don't fully understand everything, but you believe, you actually believe that he is the son of God. And he looked at you right in the eyeballs and he said, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. And you think, how in the world does that happen? Because you believe, because you admit, I need a savior and it ain't me. And I believe, not fully understand necessarily, but I believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it counted for me. And so I'm ready to receive it and say, okay, Jesus, I want my sins to be forgiven and I want to enter into that relationship with you. Because the tomb is empty, anything is possible. And because Jesus is alive, you can get that same invitation to a friendship with him in this very moment, just like this brother did 2,000 years ago. Would you please close your eyes, bow your head. And if you come to the place in your life, not by anything that I have said, but because you know that Jesus is choosing you for friendship, that in this moment that your sins could be forgiven because you admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior. You believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it counted for you. And right now you were ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. Then just tell him in your own words. And if that's you, lift up your hand high and say, Jesus, here I am. God, would you forgive my sin? God, I wanna be a friend of Jesus. And in this moment, you are surrendering your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and we praise you that when people come into this place, God, they might bump into you. That there is room for every single person in this place to come near to Jesus. And Jesus, when you died on a cross and you said it is finished, it counted for every single one of us who would believe. God, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, listen, we're going to stand up and respond in a second, and I don't want you to leave, okay? If somebody, if you try to leave, and I know you are, he's like, nah, but I can get my kid first. If you try to leave, we're going to have an usher tackle you, so do not, okay? <laughs> so if you would just please stand, and I need you just stay here. Uh, we, we respond, and here's why we respond. We respond to God for who he is and what he's done, and we're going to respond in three ways. We always respond by bringing our tithes and offerings, if you're a regular here, bringing our first and best to God because he first loved us by giving us his best in Jesus. And we're, we're, got, we're gonna respond by singing. And we sing because he's worth it. And the song that we're gonna sing, you've never heard before. And that's always kind of weird, right? Because you don't know it and you're just standing there. But here's why we're singing it this way. Because Madeline wrote it. And, and she wrote this song based on the content. Well, don't clap yet, you might not like it. I mean, that's terrible. Okay? She might start rapping or something. Okay? I don't know, all right? 
but I've heard it, it's amazing. But what she did, it, it kind of stirs me up. She took the content of the messages over the 10 week miracle series and then God gave her a song in it. So you'll see over and over and over uh, the different instances where Jesus does miracles. And so the moment you begin to catch on, then, then you, you sing like crazy. And we're gonna pray. But the way we're gonna pray is a little bit different today. I don't want anybody to pray alone. Some of you have some friends here with you and you're gonna freak them out, but whatever, welcome to 1122. And you're gonna pick up their mat and you're gonna take them to Jesus. You're gonna say, hey, I need to pray for you. And some of you need to do even the braver thing and you need to tap some people and be like, hey, will you come pray for me? And not that weak unspoken, just, just say, hey, this is what I need you to pray about and pray. And then, and then if you are here alone, then you come on down and we will have some other people that will pray for you. Nobody's gonna kiss you on the head or anything like that. You just come down and then you pray but not alone, we need each other. And we need each other to take each other to Jesus. So let us respond.